The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. This morning I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 17. But Matthew chapter 17 has a context. We, we, we know the story, and as, we, as I begin to read it in a few moments, many of you will recognize the story of the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it has a context, and the context begins in Matthew chapter 16. After three years of Jesus leading the disciples and walking with the disciples, praying with the disciples. They saw him when he was hungry. They saw him when he was tired. They saw him fall asleep in the boat. They saw his miracles. They saw the signs. They heard the parables. But only after three years did he ask them this all-important question, who do you say that I am? And through the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus still asks that question of every man and boy and woman and girl on the planet today. Who do you say that I am? And, and, and the reason that that's so important is this, that the answer to that question is what determines your eternal destiny. So many of us, we think, well, the, the, the eternity is, is certainly answered by, by my good works and what I do and how I try to live my life. And, and the a close study of the Scripture reveals that that's an absolute lie. There is no goodness in any of us that is good enough to attain heaven. And so we must answer the question, who is Jesus? And, and in this day and age, you could almost ask a follow-up question, and that is, why did he have to die? If your goodness is good enough to get you to heaven, why did Jesus have to die? The scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And each one of us, as good as you think you may be, you are still a sinner. You're not perfect. You're not perfect, and neither am I. And so the answer to the question spoken by the apostle Peter for all of the groups said, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. That means you're the one sent by God. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter in almost a peculiar way. He said, Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. Flesh and blood actually can't figure this out on its own. This was revealed to you by God. And every one of us who come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that is, we, we, do, we make this same confession of faith about who Jesus is, we come to that place because the Holy Spirit of God woos us and convicts us and directs us and calls us to the cross and to the Jesus of the cross. And so we can say unequivocally, and as we move to this Easter season, I, I say it to you again, there's no other way to the Father except through the Son. That's not politically correct in the world that you and I live in. Everybody wants to believe that everybody can just kind of make it on their own and they can, they can all find their own way. Anthony Campolo, the Baptist evangelist, was flying on the red eye from the West Coast back to his home in Philadelphia. He was exhausted after preaching all week long. He got on the plane. He was hoping to sleep, and the guy slid in next to him, and he said, hey, what do you do? 
And uh, Anthony Campolo was both a Baptist evangelist and he was a professor of sociology. He said, I discovered that if I wanted to talk to people, I told him I was a professor of sociology. If I, if I didn't want people to talk to me, I told him I was a Baptist evangelist. <laughs> he said, I wanted to sleep that day. So I told him, I said, I'm a Baptist evangelist. And the guy said to him, he said, you know how I think you get to heaven. And Anthony Campolo was so tired. He said, you know what? I almost don't even care. Well, okay, what do you think? And the guy said, I, th- I think going to heaven is like going to Philadelphia. He said, you could, you could drive to Philadelphia. You can fly like we're going to fly. He said, uh, you could even walk to Philadelphia. He said, the most important thing is we're all going to Philadelphia. And Anthony Campolo was so tired, he said, that's nice. And he closed his eyes and he went to sleep. <laughs> A couple hours later, they woke up over Philadelphia. They were circling. There was bad weather there. You, when you've been on a plane that's particularly bumpy, and kind of bad weather, and you haven't landed, and you know you're supposed to land, most planes get a little quieter. Have you ever noticed that? In that quietness, Anthony Campolo woke up, and he turned, and he looked to the man next to him, and he said, I'm glad that the pilot doesn't have the same theology that you do. Now, Mark, this was a a two-and-a-half-hour delay in his response. And the man said, what do you mean? He said, right now, our pilot, he's got the headphones on, and he's listening very carefully to the man in the control tower. And the man in the control tower is going to tell us when it's safe to land. And more than that, he's going to tell us what direction to come in from because of the wind and which runway to hit. He said, I'm glad our pilot's not saying, there are many ways into an airport. You can come in sideways. You can crash land. You can take it right through the terminal. There's a precise way in which you land, and Anthony Campolo said there's a precise way in which you get to heaven. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone. So this is what Acts 16 is, and this is why for us in this study, Acts 16 is the beginning of a look at the journey to the cross in the Easter season. So we we see the, the confession of faith, but in Acts 16, we also see the community of faith. The community of faith is the church. When you read the word church in Acts chapter 16, it's the very first time it appears in all of the Bible. If you start in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, and you're just reading the Bible through, you will not read the word church until Matthew chapter 16. Jesus doesn't mention it until after three years of his public ministry. And it's because if you haven't made a confession of faith, you're not in the church. There is no church. You understand, the church is not the building. The church are those who have made a confession of faith, have declared that by their outward sign of baptism, and they are joined together to declare that confession to the world. And you are in desperate need of the church. One of the great tragedies of America today is that there are many believers. They've made a confession of faith. They declare that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, but they don't think that they need the church. You most certainly don't need this building. Nobody will leave today going, man, do I need that church building? You don't need the building. As a matter of fact, the building looks all kinds of different ways all over the world. We have have this beautiful building. But many churches today will meet in storefronts. And many of them will meet, uh, Grace Point will meet at a school. In Africa, they'll meet under thatched roofs and mud huts. 
They, many will meet in the open air. Some will meet in tents. It's not, the, it's not the building. It's not the structure. That's not what you need. You need a community of faith. And so Jesus finally begins to talk about it once the disciples know who he is. And then lastly in Acts chapter 16, there's the action of faith. And that is you are to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. So, so uh, Matthew 16 marks the, the end of the public ministry of Christ and the true beginning of the disciples, uh, uh, discipleship and, and who they're going to be after his departure. So, so remember that in Acts 16. You have the confession of faith, you have the community of faith, and you have the action of faith. Now with that as a background, we turn our attention to Matthew 17 and we read after six days, so we know exactly what this looked like and and where they were. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Not the twelve, only the three. And uh, James and John are brothers. That's signified for us here. And he led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And without any fanfare, without any uh, explanation, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John didn't even really know what they were going to see. The scripture just says, and he was transfigured before him, before them. The, the word transfigured is a, it's a hard word for uh, interpreters of the scripture to explain to us what really happened there. The, the word that's used in the original Greek is the word where we get the English word metamorphosis. There was a, there was a metamorphosis. There was a, there was a change. There was an internal change. A metamorphosis doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. And what happened to Peter, James, and John is they were allowed to see Jesus in all of his glory. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Have you ever just tried to look at the sun when you were a kid? Like, I'm going to look at it. Everybody says you can't look at it. He couldn't do it. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them also Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And of course, as we know, if we've done any study at all, Peter is going to talk. (laughs) Peter has once said of him that whenever he opened his mouth, he just exchanged feet. (laughs) Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here uh, as you wish. And, uh, We'll, I'll make three tents, booths, three altars. Uh, I'll make three t- altars here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And one of the other Gospels, I believe it's Mark, says he said this because he, he didn't know what to say. I want to suggest to you that if you ever get a chance to see the glory of the Lord, the best thing to do would be to keep your mouth shut. He's just blabbering on. In fact, what he says is blasphemous. We, we don't worship Moses and Elijah and Jesus. We would never do that. And in this particular gospel, it continues and says, he was still speaking, verse 5. He's, just, he's blabbering on. When behold a bright cloud. Now imagine Jesus is as bright as it can be. And then a bright cloud 
uh, overshadows them, and a voice from the cloud says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So it's actually a very nice way of saying, Shut up. <laughs> Quit talking. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, now Peter stops talking. They fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. We don't, know, we don't know how much time transpired there. They fell on their faces. They're terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. Once again, Jesus taking fear away from our hearts. Whenever you have fear, it's not from God. Whenever you have fear, it's from the evil one. Taking fear from our hearts. And when they lifted up their eyes, when they finally looked up, they saw no one but Jesus only. It's an incredible moment in this story of the earthly life of Jesus because with the exception of this one instance, Jesus always kept his glory veiled so that people could not see him. They could only see him in his flesh. But we know something of the glory of God if we've done a little Old Testament work. And I want to take you back to that this morning so that you can understand that the glory of the Lord demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, if we go all the way back to uh, Moses when he uh, leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, the scripture says that after the plagues were done, and particularly after the last plague, the Passover when the death angel came, and they left Egypt, the scripture says that God led them. He led them with a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And they went out into the wilderness. That's where they uh, fashioned the tabernacle. It was often called the tent of the meeting. And the, the, the two who met there were God and Moses. And Moses would go and meet God, and, and uh, when he would go to the tent of meeting, all of the Israelites would come out. They would stand in front of their tents as if uh, Moses was in the parade route, and, and they would stand there in a solemn fashion, and he would go to the tent of the meeting, and he would meet God. He discovered in these meetings that when he came out, that his face glowed. And uh, it was the reflection of the glory of God on Moses' own face. It, it wasn't his, in, his inherent glory. And we know that because when he didn't meet with God over a period of time, the glow from his face would diminish. Like a, like a sunburn that goes away, it would go away. And Moses didn't like for the people to know when he had been with God and when he hadn't been with God. And so he took to wearing a veil over his face like the women did. And so he had his headdress and he had his veil and he covered his face so that they wouldn't see the, the departing of the reflection of the glory of God. It's a remarkable study to realize that God led them Cloud of pillar uh, in the daytime, uh, pillar of fire in the nighttime. He led them. They could literally see the presence of God. The ancient rabbis called it the Shekinah glory of God. They could see his presence. And having the presence of God, they still grumbled about their manna. They still doubted that they would have water in the desert. And they refused to go into the promised land. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine having the physical expression of the glory of God and getting so accustomed to it, you would return to your sinful ways? Well, later as we study in in the Old Testament, God reveals a vision to Ezekiel the prophet. And the the vision is that the, the sinfulness of Ezekiel's day is so terrible that God says, I will no longer dwell with the Israelites. He had always dwelled with them. After the after they stopped using the tabernacle and Solomon built the temple, the glory of the Lord rested on the, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. But Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 10, 11 is that that glory came out of the Holy of Holies and it came to the top of the temple and it went to the golden gate there that overlooks the Kidron Valley and went over to the Mount of Olives and then it ascended back to heaven. And the glory of the Lord no longer resided with the Jewish people. If you continue to read Ezekiel, you come to a place there in chapter 40 where the Lord says to Ezekiel, but I will send my glory back again. And then there's no more glory in all of the scripture until you come to Matthew chapter 17. And indeed, the heavenly father did send glory again back to earth, but it was veiled. It was veiled in the flesh of Jesus, except for this one moment and the expression of Moses being there, the, the only other man who ever stood before the glory of the Lord, and Elijah who represents the prophets who said to the people, you're going to lose the glory of the Lord. You're going to lose the dwelling of God. God said his dwelling place would be with man, and by your sinfulness you will drive him away. These two men representing the old covenant meet with Jesus right there. We are, we are not privy to that conversation. That conversation is above us. And, and, and maybe Peter and John and James would have heard it if Peter hadn't been talking. But it's not recorded for us at all. What we do have is the most certain assurance that Jesus is the complete fulfillment of of the old covenant. And, and all that's left for him here in Matthew 17 is to go to the cross and be the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world that takes away our sins. That's all that's left for him to do. But by his glory in, in this story, we also see that the glory of the Lord connects the earthly ministry of Jesus with the gospel itself. Now, I I want you to look at this. We don't have time to just like read it seamlessly. But if we did, if we were reading it through, when we came to uh, Matthew 16 and verse 21, Matthew, the writer of the gospel, records for us, from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. He, was, he told them this. He told them this on, on a multitude of occasions. Be killed and then on the third day be raised. If we continue to read in Matthew 17, when we came to verse 22, it would say, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, 
and he will be raised on the third day. And, and the scripture says, and they were greatly distressed. So they, they understood what he was saying. And in this very story that we read of the transfiguration of Jesus and the revelation of his glory, in verse 9, I did not read this to you all ago, I stopped short. In verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Three times in two chapters, separated only by a few verses, Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed. I, I'm, going to I'm going to be raised again. I'm going to resurrect myself on the third day. And it's incredible to me, if, if, uh, if you're given to this and, and you want to watch the, uh, the History Channel or National Geographic, whenever they get to the Easter season, they'll start to run some programs about Jesus and who he was. And inevitably, they'll run programs that are kind of a documentary in style, and they will have interviews with great, great intellectual minds people who have Harvard and Princeton and Yale degrees and Cambridge and Oxford who will tell us that Jesus was a simple fisherman who somehow got caught in the great political vortex of Rome and the, and the chief priest. And as an innocent pawn who was really not in control of his own life, he went to the cross. And what we have from there are the, are the myths of the resurrection invented by the fishermen of Galilee. You'll find that in more than one program this season. And it's remarkable to me that the myth is the program that you're watching, and, and they completely disregard that Jesus prophesied before it happened, I'm going to lay my life down, and I'm going to take it back up again. It, it, it doesn't fit intellectualism. But I say to you this morning, it's the only thing that fits your salvation. And so this demonstration of the glory of God, as, as Jesus was transfigured, I told you, it, it comes from the inside out. His face shone like the sun, and it actually cleaned his clothes better than OxyClean ever could. His clothes became white. Happened from the inside out. It is the picture of the fulfillment of the Old Testament and it connects the gospel to all of that. But it's even more than that. The glory of Jesus doesn't just fulfill the Old Testament covenant, it exceeds the glory of the Old Testament covenant. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to He's going to grab these stories that I've just shared with you about Moses and, and the glory of God. But he's, he's going to help us understand it in context. Now that, now that we know that Jesus is the Son of God, now that he's been transfigured before us, now that we have a new understanding of glory in the New Testament, he's going to teach this to us. And so, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 says, Now if the ministry of death, that, that is his nickname for the old covenant, because, because what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to reveal my sinfulness. I was already a sinner, I just didn't recognize it. The law is what helped me recognize who I am, and the wages of sin 
is death. And so Paul calls the old covenant the ministry of death. If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with incredible glory, so much glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its reflecting glory, which, by the way, was being brought to an end. That is, Moses's, the glory it wasn't Moses's. It was God's glory reflecting off his face, and it would, it would diminish. It would come to an end. If that's true, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? It's, it's a rhetorical question. Of course. Verse 9, for, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to have, in comparison, no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? I I, want to say a couple things to you that come right out of this passage. First of all, you and I, I, there are times when as a a Sunday school boy, I I wanted to live in the Old Testament times. I, I, I wanted to see David take Goliath with a rock. I wanted to see the walls of Jericho come down. I, I, I wanted to see the, the Shekinah glory of God, a, a pillar of fire at night. I, I wanted to see that. But now that I understand this, I understand that I, who would want to live in the Old Testament times when in the New Testament we have Jesus? We have seen the glory of the Lord. John writes in John chapter 1, and we beheld His glory, even the glory of the, of the only begotten of the Father. Nothing can compare to that. And we are silly, foolish people if we prefer to see the walls of Jericho and not see Jesus himself. Jesus is the glory of the Father. He's the one and the only, the begotten. And so everything is different for us. And you and I live in a glorious age. And if we would begin to walk with the Lord, And if we would begin to recognize who he is and we would submit ourselves to him and we would ask his Holy Spirit to have free reign in our lives, we would see more of the glory of the Lord than we do even now. But there's a final conclusion here to Paul's passage. And in the final conclusion, he tells us that the transfiguration of Jesus, this this metamorphosis that happened in Jesus, becomes the symbol of the transformed life that demonstrates his glory. We, We continue reading now, the Apostle Paul is talking about the fact that the Jews refused Jesus. And so they refused this glory. In verse 14, I'm still in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, says, because of this, their minds were hardened. We live in a world that refused to see Jesus for who he is. They refused to accept him as Savior and Lord. They refused to believe he's the only way of heaven. And so their minds become hardened, it says in verse 14. And Paul says, for to this very day, They still read the Old Testament. They still read the Old Covenant. But the same veil remains unlifted. And now uh, Paul grabs this metaphor of the veil that Moses wore over his face. And he says they've got a veil over their eyes. They can't see. The, The veil remains unlifted. Because 
Only through Christ is it taken away. Do you underline or write in your Bible? There's your phrase. Only through Christ. Not Christ and Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and fill in the blank and whatever your new age belief. No. No. Only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, verse 15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So the problem isn't, isn't even your physical eyes. The problem is your depraved heart. And the veil lies over their hearts. But verse 16 says this. But when one turns to the Lord, where does salvation come? From the Lord. From only the Lord Jesus himself. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Many of us, we have uh, taken the challenge to pick someone as the one that we're going to pray for and look for the opportunity to share our faith with. And, and we've just called them our one. And, and, and many of us have taken that challenge. And many of you have shared with me, you've had the opportunity to talk to your one. And many of those conversations, you've said, he, she doesn't get it. It's, the, they're, they're, it's as if he's blind to it. It's as if she doesn't understand it. They're flippant about it. They, they're not ready. What, what is it that you're describing? You're describing 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You're describing people with a veil over their eyes and a veil over their heart who can't see the glory of the Lord. But when we come to Jesus, verse 16, the veil is removed. And Paul says, now the Lord is the Spirit. But by the way, it, the Lord is the Spirit. Doesn't, it's, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. You understand that? The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom. And what are we free from? We're free from sin. We're free from death. We're free from hell. We're free from the wages of sin. Say amen. amen. This is as good as it gets. This is what we're free from. No more veil. We see it clearly. And so we, verse 18, all, all believers with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. And we are, still the same sentence, we are being, look at the word, transformed. You know what that word is? In Matthew 17, it's translated transfigured. It's metamorphosis. It's the metamorphosis that takes place in the life of every believer. When you give yourself to the Lord and His Holy Spirit moves in to the temple and the glory sits on the, on the mercy seat of your heart and is now in you, then there is a a transformation, a metamorphosis that takes place in our lives. And we are being transformed into the same image. Who? To the image of Christ. God's doing a work to make me like Jesus. I, I couldn't make myself like Jesus in a million years. I can't even, I can't even stop eating Doritos. <laughs> I, I don't have the willpower to make myself like Jesus. You're not saved by your good works. You're not saved because you clench your fists and you grit your teeth and you do it by your willpower. Not a one of us could do that, but he's doing it. And he transforms us. He, there's a metamorphosis that takes place in our life. And he changes us into the image. And how does it happen in sanctification? Well, 
it happens from one degree of glory to another. It's, it, sanctification is a process. I, praise God, I'm not who I was five years ago, ten years ago. I've grown, I've changed, I've been sanctified. God's making me like Jesus. And so I'm, I'm walking to become degree by degree like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's doing that in my life. And for some of us, degree by degree is like this. Some of you, I've known you a long time. This is how you're growing in Christ. God bless you. You're going to get there. When we can grow degree by degree, God wants to do that work. And it's described for us here. And it's because Jesus Christ would demonstrate this to Peter, James, and John, that we come to understand this is the work of the Heavenly Father through His one and only Son sent to the cross who rose again the third day, now living in every believer's heart through His Spirit that He wants to do in your life. Well, by way of benediction, I want to take you back to Matthew 17, and I want to read only one part of of one verse. I want to read the last half of verse 8. Matthew 17, the last half of verse 8. Well, I'll just read it all. When they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the purpose of the glory of the Lord. You and I should live our lives in such a way that we just don't really see anyone but Jesus. Oh, if you want to look around at this world and find a reason to complain, you can complain. You can complain about politics. You can complain about the city, street, department, and buildings. You can complain about the state of education, poverty, and crime. You can complain about the coffee and the coffee hub. There's plenty to complain about. Unless you only see Jesus. If you only see Jesus, then all of the little things of life that bug you disappear. They become trivial. They no longer matter. The glory of the Lord is so that each believer, as we live our lives, we only see Jesus. And my hope and prayer is that when you look at me, you only see Jesus. And when I look at you, I only see Jesus. And it changes who we are because of his glory. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.